What an amazing day. A full house, a baptism, new faces, old faces that have come back and that we haven't seen in a while. Welcome back from vacation. It's great to see you all here this morning. Um, one of the moments, obviously, that was most touching for me this morning so far has been Gabrielle's baptism. Just watching somebody who's chosen to, to publicly demonstrate that they have new life in Jesus. And that is absolutely amazing. We, we've looked in this series about the spiritual conflict that we are in. And one of the things we've said over and over again is that the war that's happening in the spirit world, the war that's happening isn't uh, out there necessarily. It's, it's right here in you. You are the battleground between God and the, the world, the flesh, our own desires, sin. You are the battleground. And it's who is going to, who are you going to follow? Who are you going to choose to be with? And one uh, brings death and the other brings life. So, Gabrielle, it's so amazing that um, you chose this public moment to say that you have been born again in Jesus, that the death sentence that sin had on your life is no more because God has given you new life through his spirit, which is so beautiful. And we're so proud of you for making that choice and making that declaration in front of us. We want to stand with you in that and help you every step of the way we can to live out that purpose that God has for you. Our hearts this summer have been simple, even though the topic is complex and uh, sometimes overlooked because we don't know how to talk about it fully, um, because it's not material, it's, it's not something that we can, uh, we can always put our hands on or, or, or tangibly think about, but we've sought to understand that because we are both body and spirit. None of us here are just flesh. There's a part of us, that internal part of us, that we know that we can't describe, but we know has this spirit uh, function to us, this, this uh, eternal nature that we, we have to deal with. And because we're both spirit and flesh, this means we need to understand not only natural things, how things work in the, in the, the physical world, but also in the spiritual world as well. And just like we have conflict in the natural world, there is spiritual conflict as well. And when we ignore it, it's both to our own danger and it's ill-advised to think that uh, in the spirit realm, we need to be oblivious and just walk through life. It'd kind of be like uh, ignoring traffic and feeling like you can just walk wherever you want on the road and that traffic is not going to affect you. We would never do that, would we? We would never just walk out into the, the 401, you know, and, and decide, you know, I can cross the 401 to get from the north side of the 401 to the south side any way I want. I could just walk across anywhere. We would not think that that is a smart thing to do. Yet in the spirit realm, sometimes we just decide we can walk wherever, do whatever, without paying attention to what kind of traffic is going on. And that's not great. Today, I want to anchor our message in two quotes. The first is going to highlight our current problem, and then the final one highlights our common opportunity. But before we get there, let's pray. God, we just thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that uh, in this world, even with all the conflict that goes on in it, uh, both in the natural and in the, the supernatural, in the spirit realm, God, we see it all around us. 
We see the conflict in the natural because of what's going on in the supernatural. It's kind of, it kind of boils over, that which is unseen boils over into what is seen. And we see it come out in people and in, in cultures and in conflict between us. And it's not just between two people, but there's a spiritual element to it, God. And so, God, we want to recognize that. We don't want to be oblivious to it or ignore it. We want to be fully aware as best we can of what's going on in the world around us so that we can navigate it with you. And we can see how you are making your way through the world, how you are trying to advance your kingdom and advance good and love and joy and peace and mercy. And we want to partner with you in those things. So give us eyes to see, ears to hear what you are doing, God, what your word reveals to us and what your spirit reveals to us so we can walk in it. God, may we do that so it both protects us and it equips us for what you have in store for our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Richard Lovelace says this. He says, although part of the church pays lip service to the reality of sin and worldliness and even demonic agents, it seems to me much of the church's warfare today is fought by blindfolded soldiers who can't see the forces ranged against them, who are buffeted by invisible opponents and respond by striking one another. Isn't that the case sometimes? We're blindfolded or we feel blindfolded and we're striking out and we're not hitting an enemy, we're hitting each other. We're focused on what each other thinks and what another person thinks, another faith group thinks, or another person maybe sitting on the opposite side of the sanctuary today from you, their view on the world and politics and everything in between. And that's who we respond to and how we respond. We often get caught seeing our enemy in the eyes of each other. David Wells, though, who is the uh, general superintendent of the PAOC, has said this, though, worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look weird and sin look normal. And our common opportunity is to turn from this, turn from making righteousness look weird and sin look normal, to turn from that and focus on a God who absolutely loves us. That's what we want to reflect in how we live our lives. Now, we started this 10-week series looking and rooting in that exact thing, the love of God. Because right now, because God is love, as we read in 1 Corinthians 13, he is being patient with me. He is being kind towards me. He's bearing all things with me, believing the best about me, inviting me to abide in him. Enduring with me even as I fall short, celebrating as his truth sets me free. And I hope that the same is true for you, that you feel God's love in the same way, because you could insert your name in there as well. He is being patient with you and kind towards you. Because God is love, there isn't a time when God isn't being loving towards us. We may look at the world around us and say there's a lack of love, but that doesn't mean God isn't always being loving towards us. Those of us who are parents know that love sometimes looks different than what our kids would hope it would look like. 
that love knowing what's best and knowing what's right and leading you towards what's right and what's best doesn't always feel like love. Sometimes it feels like restriction or correction or advice that you didn't want to take. But God is always, always being loving towards us. Now, if God's motive is love, then what would we say is Satan's motive in all the demonic activity in life? What is their motive? Satan and unclean spirits have a single purpose in your life, and that's to lead you in an ever-increasing, progressively worse state, to see you go from where you are and continually get worse. And it starts with theft and moves to destruction. Charles Kraft says it like this, Satan is anti-love anti-God, anti-everything God does and stands for. He hates God and uses every means at his disposal to thwart God's activity, especially his loving relationship with us. Think of that. Everything he's doing is trying to thwart our relationship with God. Satan and unclean spirits have the direct opposite motives towards us than God does. Like I said, motive isn't love. It's to disrupt humanity in opposition to God. John 10.10 says it this way, that the thief comes only to steal, then to kill and destroy, to rob you of your joy, your peace, to rob you of the relationship that God has with you or wants to have with you, to rob you of the purpose that God has for your life, to rob you of the promises that God has given to you. He wants to rob you of those things, which kills the life that God has for you and leads to destruction. Now, sometimes this spiritual conflict, like we've talked about, is within us. It's strongholds that are inside of us. And we, we, we want to work on those strongholds and develop ways to become free from those things. Other times, the spiritual conflict is around us. And that's where the idea of spiritual warfare, standing in the gap, battling uh, on behalf of others and on behalf of our community in order to see freedom come from those who yet even don't even know the bondage that they're in, the strongholds that they're facing. The truth is, each one of us are born onto this battlefield, never against others. You weren't born into a battlefield against each other or against me, but against real powers, principalities, resisting us from seeing on earth as it is in heaven. Now, God, God is always working in our lives. When we see it, when we don't see it, he is always working. And like I said in weeks past, he's working to bring both loving salvation to the lost and freedom to the captives. Now today, you may not feel like a captive, but in reality, whenever we settle for a quote-unquote normal faith, it is below what Jesus intended. I want you to hear me there. Whenever we settle for a normal faith, it is below what Jesus intended. God never intended you for you just to always be like under the radar, 
always under the radar, never ever being seen or known or never being distinguished or differentiated from the culture around you. That is not what normal faith looks like. But then when we see normal faith, when we look at others who are actually living a Jesus-filled faith, we call it what? Radical. We see people living their life faith-filled, acting on what God calls them to do and say and be, and we go, man, they're a radical for Jesus. Unfortunately, probably, they're just living out a normal faith. And I say unfortunately because that means sometimes the rest of us need to live out that normal faith as well. And it's hard. I get it. It's hard. But we don't want to settle. God, that you would set our hearts on fire for you by setting us free from mediocrity and apathy. C.S. Lewis said it this way. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is with the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. Isn't that true? I can't remember where I heard the saying, but it's one that I often reflect on it and uh, use to help course correct myself. And it's this, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I always intended to. I always meant to spend more time in God's word. I, always, I, I was going to get around to doing this. I had the intention of going and, and helping somebody, or God put it in my heart to go and help somebody I knew was in trouble, and I intended to go, and then I just got distracted. I got caught up in other things. While we trust God, we trust the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who work together to bring us into relationship with Him. We also battle three things the look to see our destruction, the devil, our flesh, and the world around us. The devil is the chief fallen angel. The flesh is our sin-infected human nature. One cure, the redeeming uh, work of Jesus, one that we need that cure. The world are human systems that function in rebellious and ungodly ways. All of our man-made systems are flawed, even the best ones, even the ones that we think are like cannot be uh, corrupted, are corrupted and will be corrupted. And so we keep that under advisement. And no matter what we face in the world, we are facing human systems. And so we, we, we battle these things, not people, the devil, the flesh, and the world, the systems that are created that are rebellious and ungodly. And I encourage you, if you've missed any of the series in this, the weeks in this series, I encourage you to go to our podcast and catch up on any week you missed so you get the fullness of what we've talked about. See, in the series, we've talked about uh, us living God's story, how we're supposed to be the salt and the light in the world, how we're supposed to bring flavor and light to who God is. We also unpacked 
how spiritual conflict is often fought on three battlegrounds, our minds, our mouths, and in our emotions. Finally, we unpack the difference between authenticity, authority, and accountability. We're going to wrap up our spiritual conflict series by mentioning what I would say are five essential ingredients that we hope you don't lose sight of in following and being formed like Jesus. So let's look at Ephesians 6, uh, 10 to 18 this morning. And it says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given to you by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. We can just rest right there, can't we? Pick up that shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. May we pick up that shield today and stand firm in our faith with Jesus. Take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So what are the five things that we're looking to live out as we look to be formed uh, like Jesus in the midst of spiritual conflict? The first one is this. Make prayer a practice. Make prayer a practice. This is how Jesus flourished in the world when he was with us. And as his followers, let's follow his example. Jesus consistently found time to be alone so he could communicate with his Father. He consistently found time so he could understand the will of the Father and then go and live that out. We need to consistently spend time with God and the Word, but both in prayer and with God's Word, spend time understanding God's will for our life, God's ways for our lives. In prayer, we give room for God to move in a situation, a life, or a circumstance. And at the very least, we make room for him to move in our own hearts, which we always need. And if we're, we're authentic in how we pray, and in, in coming to God, understanding that he's God and we're not, he's not an ATM or a uh, click-and-collect shopping service, but instead he is the God Almighty, and we are approaching him with our problems and with our challenges, but we're also approaching him for guidance, correction, how to live, and we're activating what he says in our life. When we do that, it reminds us, again, of our position with him, and we can live it out in a better way. The second thing is this, make position a priority. Make position 
a priority. Romans 8, 12 to 17 says this. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We make our position a priority. And what is that position? We find our identity solely in being God's children. Not in what we can do, not in uh, our position versus somebody else's position, not in any allegiance to any political party or any ideology on earth, any human structures or systems on earth. We don't find any position in those things. We find our position as sons and daughters of God, of whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's why... Again, it was such a beautiful moment to see Gabrielle choose to say, today I am identified as a, as a daughter of God. I am an heir of her, I have a father. To see that, make that declaration, to not fall back into slavery, to fear and sin, but to cry out to God and say, you are my God. So amazing. I can say it again if you really want. We reject the lies that your identity is rooted in performance or popularity or possessions. We reject those lies and embrace our identity is first positional. That you say, I am a son or daughter in Jesus. All these secondary identifiers in our lives, they do matter. Who God has called you to be, the skills that he's given you, the gifts, the supernatural gifts that he's given you are important. But often the enemy will not need to attack them because he knows if he can deceive you about your position, you'll never walk in the power and the authority that Jesus provides to you. If he can get you off track from that, it doesn't matter if he deceives you about the rest of your secondary issues. Because you're not following God the way he asked and wanted you to. Think of it this way. Position doesn't equal maturity. A one-day-old baby is just as much your child as perhaps their 10-year-old sibling. The position that they hold doesn't change because they're one day into this world versus 10 years into this world. Our position in Christ, whether we are a brand new Christian or whether we are seasoned in following Jesus and have followed him on the journey of life for many years, that position in Christ is the same. And we stand in the same authority. We stand in the same power because it's the same Jesus that holds us there. The third thing, we want to make humility our posture. 
Make humility our posture. So there's make prayer a practice, make position a priority, make humility our posture. The Apostle Paul gives an gives us an inspiring example. In Philippians 1, he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. For some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here uh, for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul lived a very hard life. But when you read half of what he wrote, you would never get that idea. When you hear the joy that he speaks with, when you hear the joy of his salvation and what God is doing consistently in his life and the message that he's given Paul to proclaim, you see a man that's filled with joy and passion to share who Jesus is. Because we fail to recognize that half the time he's writing, he's either in jail or recovering from being beaten almost to death, or being shipwrecked and almost drowned, or being snake-bitten, or being whatever. He's been, he's been afflicted so many times, and it's while he's recovering from these moments that he's scribing out these letters, and he's like, isn't this amazing, this journey that we get to be on? Humility is our posture. Humility is our posture. Because what we hold is so much more dear than the temporal uh, things of this world. Number four, make conviction, not condemnation, our friend. Make conviction, not condemnation, our friend. Romans 8.1 says this, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to have no condemnation if we are in Christ Jesus? Condemnation, it has the power to cause us to waver in trusting God's word. Have you found that? That when you feel condemned, what do you do? You start wavering in your position of where you are with God. You start to wonder, am I really where I should be? Am I doing what I should be doing? Am I really in, this, in the position with God that I should be in? We waver in it. And we don't want to do that. We want to walk together in unity with one another. Think of it this way. Condemnation usually has a hazy-based theme, doesn't it? It's hateful and hopeless. It brings the sense that you are a lost cause, that you are chained to your sin forever, that you will never change, that God doesn't care for you. Condemnation is always a lie for anyone in Christ. I don't know about you, but when I feel condemnation, when I feel and I'm allowing it to, to be too large in my life, that's usually what happens. There's no pinpoint as far as exactly what I need to work on. It's a generalization of how I am just a failure or how I'm messing up or not living up to a standard. And it's not always that specific. Conviction, though, it's like high-definition clarity, helpful and hopeful. 
Conviction is rooted in love, not in hate. It's clear, not hazy. God loves you and wants what's best for you. He brings conviction into your life to convince you that there's a better way. He, he pinpoints things in your life that he wants you to look at and address, but he does it in a way that says, come closer to me so we can work on this, not in a way that pushes you away from him. Conviction and condemnation, they both make us grieve. They do. They both cause us to, to reflect and, and have some type of remorse, but only conviction leads people from guilt to forgiveness, from death to life, from lost to found. Condemnation doesn't do that. Condemnation leaves you feeling unforgiven, feels like you're going to die, feels like you're lost. So let's make conviction our friend, not condemnation, in how we treat others and how we view our relationship with God. Number five, make darkness our target. Make darkness our target. The quote we shared at the beginning uh, that stated our current problem. Although parts of the church pay lip service to the reality of sin and worldliness, uh, even demonic agents, it seems that we, uh, to me, much of the world's warfare today is fought by blindfolded soldiers who can't see the forces ranged against them, who are buffeted by invisible opponents and respond by striking one another. Let's make darkness our target instead of each other. Let's make darkness our target instead of uh, other people, whether it's in the church or outside the church. Let's make darkness pay the price for what it's trying to do to our culture rather than each other pay the price. Let's not wage war against each other, but against the powers and principalities of this world. Now, we respond to that. I want to I wanna quote the words of Dean Sherman, and it says this, if we could only redirect our combat towards the powers of darkness, if we could harness the emotions and the energy spent fighting one another and direct them towards our common enemy, we would see widespread change. We could see in our generation the total collapse of a satanic empire that we've allowed to operate freely for too long. If each of us were determined never to fight another human being as long as we lived, Satan would tremble. We could do to him what we have been doing to one another for centuries. Can you imagine that? Even the humble group that we are here today, if we were to decide that we will not, we will not strive against each other or against others, but we will take every battle and we will bring it into the spirit realm. We will take every opposition and we will see it for what it is, a spiritual conflict, not a human conflict, not a person-to-person conflict. If we were to do that, we would see strongholds broken. We would see the strongholds that, that we know exist in Cornwall broken. We look at Cornwall and we can see that there, there is a stronghold over our youth and young adults. We can see that for some reason, uh, 
there's a stronghold over, over young girls and how many in our community are unwed pregnant mothers and dealing with that. We can see that the enemy has strongholds in this city that need to be broken, that cannot be broken when our focus is not on breaking those strongholds, but it's all tied up in whether we are comfortable in how we're living out our faith in the natural when we're focused on each other and on smaller things. But if we take our battle to those things, if we take our battle to the, to the stronghold that the occult has in this city, when we take our battle to the stronghold that uh, when we look through the history of the city and we see where the enemy has gotten a grip, where we've given the enemy a, a foothold in our community, and we stand in the gap and we say, no. And in Jesus' name, we step into those places and break those strongholds. That's when we'll see the freedom come for people. And where does that start? Let's go all the way back to step one. Make prayer a priority. Because our battles that we fight are not physical. They're not in arguments against other people. They're not in friendly debates or uh, let me help you understand the different ways that you need to be thinking. They're in the spirit realm. They're in our prayers. They're in our communication with God and in our stand against the powers and principalities of this world and taking claim of what God gives us here. To seize this common opportunity, to take the righteousness of God from being weird and the sin being normal, to reverse that trend in our culture today, that's our common opportunity. And that starts when we do those five things, starting with prayer. Next Sunday, we're going to be starting a new series in teaching at Life Center called Build Your House, where we look at wanting to do just that. Build the house of God so that as we build ourselves up, we are the people of God that can go out there and do the damage that we need to do as uh, God's ambassadors. When, when Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his kingdom, look around. Just take a second and look at each other. You are his kingdom. You are the body of Christ. It's not just a geographic space. It is an eternal space that rests in each and every one of you. So if if the gates of hell will not stand against his kingdom, it cannot stand against us when we stand in who we are in Christ and live out the life that he has for us. My prayer is that together, that we will focus our energy on prayer and understanding God's word, understanding God's purpose and, and value that he places on our lives that we would see what normal faith looks like, that it has a radical element to it that says, this is what I'm calling you to be, this is what I'm calling you to do, this is what I'm calling you to say, and I need you to be okay with it. I need you to be okay with looking a little different than the culture all around you because you're an ambassador here. This isn't your home. You're just passing through because God's got a place for you in his kingdom forever that is absolutely amazing and brilliant. 
And we can live that kingdom presence starting now. Let's pray. God, we just thank you. We thank you that as we've looked over the last 10 weeks at what spiritual conflict is, we've done so rooting ourselves in the fact that you are God. Absolute. And that there is only one God. This isn't a battle between two gods and we don't know the outcome. We don't know how the story is going to end. We don't know who is more powerful or anything. That's not the story that we understand and are walking through. We are rooted and grounded in the fact that you are God. Absolute authority and power for now and forevermore. And because we rest in that, God, we see the battle in front of us. We see the spiritual conflict in front of us. And we don't face it wondering how we're, we're going to manage. We face it knowing that when we put our trust in you, our faith in you, even when things are hard, that, God, you are with us. You will lead us and guide us. And that we can overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And so, God, we rest assured in that. We stand firm in who you are, God. And when, God, we face strongholds, either in our own life or spiritual warfare and the strongholds in others' lives and in, in the, the region around us, God, when we face those strongholds, God, we come to you by the power of your spirit and of your word. We stand firm in those things to break those strongholds, God. So God, may we, as, as a church body here, as a congregation, may we stand firm in our identity in you as sons and daughters of the King. May we stand firm in the place that you've given us in this community to be salt and light, to bring love, to not fight with anyone, but instead to bring freedom in your loving salvation everywhere we go. God, may we rest in that as we look to this fall. Build your house here in Cornwall. God, may next week when we start with the, the kids, may we start building from the youngest of kids in life kids to all of us in the, the main sanctuary here. May all of us be building into our lives what's needed in order to follow you, God. God, as we launch into the fall, God, we just pray for your anointing to be on this place. We pray for your spirit. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to lead us and guide us, to prepare us, to correct us, and to position us for what you have in store. Again, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear where your spirit is leading us as a community. And may we have the strength of your spirit to walk that out. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.